Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the place to go get digital audiobooks. Over at audible.com, there are hundreds of thousands of titles to choose from in a wide range of genres, and you can play them on just about any digital listening device in your hand, whether it's an iPhone, a Kindle, an Android, whatever you got. And here is an amazing deal, everybody. Right now, for listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial. Go get 50 Shades of Grey, the trashy BDSM Literary Sensation, did I say that right? BDSM Sensation by E.L. James, or how about the collected stories of Edgar Allan Poe, or The Grapes of Wrath, the classic by John Steinbeck. Any one of these titles can be yours. Any title over at Audible can be yours, free of charge. And if you do this, if you get the free audiobook, it helps the program. I get a few nickels. That is enjoyable. To download your free audiobook, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. This is an amazing deal. It is available right now. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. All right, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is orally stimulating. This is what you listen to in an effort to distract yourself from the fact that you are exercising. My guest today is Chris D'Agostino. He is the author of a debut novel called The Sleepy, Fa- uh, Sleepy Hollow Family Almanac, now available from the good people at Algonquin Books. And uh, Sleepy Hollow was a selection of the TNB Book Club. That is the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. And for those of you who aren't aware, The Nervous Breakdown is my online culture magazine and literary community. Uh, We feature a bunch of great writers. Uh, Recently on the site, we've had uh, Edgar Carrot and Anne Lamott, just to name a couple. So go check it out at thenervousbreakdown.com. And if you're interested, join the book club. That's a great thing to do. You just click on book club in the menu bar. And for only $9.99 a month, you get a brand new book delivered to your door every 30 days. So uh, that's a terrific deal. That's less than the cost of a movie ticket. And that's less than the cost of a book. And uh, as an added bonus, I uh, interview all the book club authors right here on this program so you can read the book and then you can hear me in conversation with the author to round out your experience. So uh, I'm going to be talking with Chris 
D'Agostino uh, in just a second. And, uh, you know, but first I want to talk about an odd experience that I had earlier today. Uh, I, I had a meeting scheduled just a little while ago with a business associate, I guess you could say. Uh, you know, she was sort of introduced to me by a friend. We hit it off. Uh, very nice gal. And we're talking. And uh, we have been talking along businessy lines, like possible ventures, creative projects, possibilities, and so on. And uh, lately we've been having trouble getting in touch uh, because she has been traveling a lot. She's got a lot of different things going on. She's into music. Uh, I've got a lot of things going on. I'm writing. I'm doing this show. I'm running the nervous breakdown, uh, etc. So uh, it's finally at the point where we're both here in town and we both have some time. And so we set up a meeting at a coffee shop that is essentially equidistant from our respective residences. So uh, I picked it out actually thinking, uh, well, this will be fair. This is more or less right in the middle. It's as good as we can hope for. Uh, so we set the time, the place, and I drive over there earlier today. And uh, it's this little dark hole in the wall coffee shop. And I walk in and uh, I'm pretty sure that I see uh, Larry Charles, the uh, the director of uh, Borat and uh, the upcoming The Dictator. You know what he looks like? Uh, he was sitting there talking to somebody. He was having a coffee meeting. And so I walk up, uh, I get a caffeinated beverage of my own, and I take a seat, and I'm now facing who I think is Larry Charles. And, uh, you know, if you don't know what he looks like, he looks kind of like a crazy hippie. He's got the big white beard and uh, the mustache, and he wears sunglasses at all times. Uh, he's sort of like the Rick Rubin of independent comedy or something like that. So I'm sitting there in this coffee shop, and it's it's a relatively quiet coffee shop, as coffee shops often are, uh, because most everyone there is working, uh, and most of these people are working on screenplays or some kind of creative writing project, uh, or at least that's how I you know perceive it whenever I'm in there. You see a lot of Final Draft uh, on people's screens. You see a lot of MacBook Pros uh, and a lot of headphones and iPhones and so on. Uh, and on a side note, uh, I find that it's, it, it's sort of stressful to have a meeting of any kind, uh, be it a social or business oriented, uh, engagement in a coffee shop like this, because when you talk, everyone in the entire place can hear you. So you ha you have to talk, uh, sotto voce. Is that how you say it? Sotto voce. So, uh, Larry Charles, assuming it was indeed him is sitting there with his friend or colleague or whoever it was. And uh, they're talking about movies at a relatively low, uh, but still like discernible volume. And because I'm facing them and because I'm by myself, I have nothing else to look at except them. So I'm in like direct eye line uh, with Larry Charles and uh, I don't want him to think that I'm staring at him. Uh, so I take out my phone, of course, uh, because what else am I going to do? And I start staring at my phone and uh, like scrolling through old messages and so on, just trying to like occupy my, my eyes. And so this goes on for like 15 minutes. And uh, at this point, I'm about halfway done with my caffeinated beverage. And I send a text message uh, to this woman I'm supposed to be meeting with. And I say, you know, I'm here. And almost instantly, my phone starts ringing and I answer. And it is this woman, this female on the other end of the line and she's like, I'm so sorry. Uh, I'm on the other side of town. I'm in a recording studio. Uh, how long will it take me, you know, for me to get there? And I'm like, uh, you know, <laughs> half an hour. And she's like, well, do you have time later this afternoon? 
And I'm like, uh, no, you know, I'm busy this afternoon. I have, I have work to do. And that is why we scheduled a meeting, <laughs> Uh, so that we get, you know, we, we could get together at an agreed upon time to talk about stuff. And she's like, yeah, I'm, I'm just not going to be able to make it. I'm so sorry. So I'm like, all right, you know, and she's like, but you know, uh, you know, what are you doing tonight? And I'm like, well, I'm probably going to eat some dinner and uh, hang out with my daughter and, and then maybe go to bed. And she's like, well, you know, some friends and I are getting together to celebrate my birthday. So maybe you could come out and join us. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, and she's like, well, yeah, well, why don't you come? You know, she's very nice about it, but uh, I'm sitting there thinking to myself, you know, hold on a second. Like you scheduled this meeting with me. Like you emailed me and said, let's meet. And I said, okay. And so we scheduled something and then you didn't show up and I'm sitting there drinking a caffeinated beverage, trying not to stare at Larry Charles for 15 minutes and uh, you don't even bother like emailing me ahead of time to tell me that you aren't going to be able to make it. And, and now you're inviting me to your birthday party. So it was all happening very fast and it was very psychologically confusing. And uh, I'm on the phone and uh, I'm a little pissed off. I'm a little frustrated, uh, understandably, I think. Uh, but I'm in this dark, quiet coffee shop. And so everything that I'm saying, I am saying it uh, quietly. Like at, at almost a whisper, like the, like this very restrained volume. So this woman's like, so are you, you know, are you going to come? Are you going to come to my birthday party? And I'm like, um, you know, probably not. Like I've, I've been up since 5am. It's been a long week, you know? And she's like, well, you should come, come on, just come to my birth, come to my birthday party. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I, I just don't think, I just don't think I can do it. And so, like, you know, as you can tell, uh, I have a hard time uh, telling people no. It's a, it's a difficult process for me in any context. But in this instance, uh, I felt like it was within reason to decline. And uh, to be frank, I wanted to speak more vociferously on behalf of my cause. But I also did not want to interrupt the various uh, screenwriters working all around me on their various projects. And I didn't want to interrupt uh, Larry Charles and his colleague. And uh, I just didn't want to make a scene because that's just, you know, I'm not that kind of person. So eventually uh, we hang up, this woman and I, and I get up and I leave the coffee shop and I walk outside into bright Los Angeles sunlight. And instantly I get two text messages from the woman saying how sorry she is uh, and then talking about how hectic things have been, hence the fact that she spaced our meeting. And then once again, she invites me to the birthday party. And I did not respond and, uh, because I wasn't sure how to respond. And so now it's like, you know, how mad should I be about this? You know, like she spaced it and, you know, shit happens. These things happen. And, and I don't care if somebody cancels a meeting. Uh, what I'm saying is just don't make me drive halfway across town and sit there for 15 minutes in this dark place and then call me and be like, oh, I'm so busy. I'm sorry. I can't make it. Can you do it later this afternoon? No. Oh, well, why don't you come to my birthday party? You know, because then I feel like a dick for not going to the birthday party. And that's my problem. Like some people, they can compute this quickly. Uh, they can be like, fuck it. I'm not coming to your goddamn birthday party. You just stood me up and flaked on a meeting. I got other stuff to do. Uh, but I, on the other hand, will agonize about this. I will think to myself, uh, you know, yes, you are justified in being frustrated, but is it really such a grievous offense that you would forego an invitation to a birthday party? 
because now this woman is going to go out to celebrate her birthday and uh, my absence will be felt, however modestly, and it will probably cause her feelings of guilt and disquiet and will on some level diminish the celebration. And those feelings of guilt and disquiet, uh, as they subside, may likely become feelings of bitterness and contempt, and I will be remembered not as the guy who stood up uh, who you know who got stood up at the coffee meeting, but rather as the guy who didn't show up to her birthday party. And so now I'm left here with this conundrum, and I find myself thinking that maybe I'm thin-skinned and petty, and maybe this whole thing has actually demonstrated an ugly, self-important side of my personality, and maybe I need to reevaluate myself a little bit and consider things like love and forgiveness and what they might mean to me and how I understand them, and what you know what the great spiritual teachers were trying to say when they encouraged peace and reconciliation and compassion for our fellow man in his flawed state, and so on and so forth. And in my head, I'm sort of, you know, sitting here thinking, uh, what would Jesus do? But I, you know, I just, I really don't want to go to the birthday party because it feels socially awkward at this point, And I won't know anybody there except for this woman. And I'm tired. Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. I went to film school and like, I'm obsessed with film and I'll watch anything just because I'd like to stay like on top of, you know, like I'll just watch anything so that I can be like, sure, I saw The Hunger Games, let's talk about it. But it takes me a really long time to read books. I'm a slow reader and like I tend to get like wrapped up in them and like I just, I can't dedicate that much time to reading the hunger games you know i read the first five pages of it and they're like really badly written okay so and what about film like when you say you went to film school where did that happen it happened in boston i went to bu for a year right out of right out of college um god it's, it's going back now i graduated from college in 2000 and i went to immediately went to bu that following fall because i didn't want to like get a job and I was like, oh, I'll get my MFA in film. It'll be another two years of partying. <laughs> and um, I went up to do, like, film studies um, slash, like, screenwriting at BU and, like, immediately hated it. Hated it. was not prepared for, like, a graduate workload. And uh, I, I lasted about a year, and then I, I dropped out. Oh, you did? Much okay. to my parents' dismay at the time. Yeah, I, I lasted the year up there. Then I went home for the summer. Then I moved back up there to start the first year, the second year, and I went to one day of classes, and I was like, "This is ridiculous," and I went and dropped out. Why? What and, was uh, it? What was it that made you want to drop out? Just the workload? No, it wasn't the workload. I was having like weird. Well, I had never like lived. Part of it was I had never lived alone, like away from like 
everything that was like comforting to me. So like I packed up all my stuff and moved to Boston. I didn't know anyone. And I think part of that, and, and then like all of the kids that were at BU in the film program, like I just like didn't really find anybody that I clicked with. And, um, they seem to be all into like, I don't know. I went up there with all these like film, like I was 21 at the time. I went up there with all these like film ideals where I was like, I'm going to be the next whoever, you know? And then like everyone up there just wanted to talk about how they wanted to make like James Cameron style, like blockbusters. And that really like hurt my like sensibilities at the time of like what I thought was like important in the art world, you know? <laughs> and, um, like I just butted heads with the head of the program up there and the, in the, in the, uh, uh, in the writing portion of it. And like, I sort of suspected that like grades were being handed out and I don't know. We just, just a lot of things conspired to me having like a really bad time in what, general up what, there. What do you mean your grades were being handed out? Well, like, I mean, I just felt like, I don't know. I had like heard that like, you know, in grad school there was like, you could do work, but then also like, if you just like fell into line, you could get like an A. And then like, there was one point where like, I, I knew I had like one foot out the door the whole time. And then like second semester, we had to like, we had to write these big term papers. <laughs> this is like my big first grad school story that I always tell all the time. It was like, we had to write these uh, term papers that were like, you know, 30 page minimum papers where we followed one character's arc through an entire movie and like analyzed like how it was written and how the character developed. And so like I was obsessed with Boogie Nights at the time. So I chose like Mark Wahlberg's character in, in Boogie Nights and I wrote this paper, you know, it was like 40 page paper that I thought was like brilliantly describing his character arc and everything like that. Turned it in and then like a week later, the professor gave it back. Um, along with like three or four other students' papers. And he's like, these papers that I'm giving back are unacceptable. Um, like you all have failing grades. I'm, I'm giving you guys a week to like rewrite these based on like what my problems are with them. And, and then like I'll regrade them, you know, come see me individually. So like I went to see him after class and he like, he basically just like tore the paper apart, told me like I didn't know how to write. And like I used too many commas was like his main critique of it there were too many commas um which there probably were but anyway i i was like okay so i didn't do anything to the paper for the week and then i turned it back in exactly the same and i got an a minus and i was like okay <laughs> like, i'm out of here it just seemed like you know like he was just giving busy work to the kids he didn't like or something like that so. are you shitting me no, that that really happened. Like, I'm not making that story up. Like, I sat on the paper for a week. I didn't do anything to it, you know? And I was like, this guy's ridiculous. I will not say his name, but it was not cool. Why? What's it? You should out him right now in public. <laughs> should I? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean that's, like, that's crazy. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. And then, so then, even then, like, I was just like, it was like an eye-opener for me. And I was like, whoa, so strange. And, um... Well, no, but do, do, you, then, do you know the uh, do you know the anecdote about Paul Thomas Anderson? Since you're a, a Boogie Nights fan, like in his film school experience at NYU. No, no, I don't. He took. I mean, he was famously at NYU Film School for like a five minutes, and he went out there. Right, right. He went out there when he was like 18, and I think in his first screenwriting course, he handed in I want to say five pages of some David Mamet screenplay. And yes. got like a C on it or something. It was just like fuck. That's this. hilarious. Yeah, that is great. Yeah, I mean it's those kind of things. I mean, I mean this isn't a story about also about like me being you know, like oh like they just didn't understand my genius or anything like that. It was just literally this was like a, a you know a, a academic paper that was like it, it just seemed like such a strange thing to me at the time. But that's funny about his story as well. I mean it's just like people sometimes in these programs I don't know what the heck people who they're hiring to teach these things but it was pretty funny so I kind of just like coasted through the rest of that year and and um, 
tried to give it another go because I wanted the degree, you know, but I just couldn't do it. So what did you study in undergrad? I, stu- <laughs> I, stu- I ended up studying, uh, they had, I went to Fairfield University in Connecticut. Um, it's like a, a pretty small liberal arts, like Jesuit run school. Um, I, I entered undergrad, you know, under the, the pretext of I was going to be pre-med. Um, and I had, I had taken, you know, they put me in some general biology class and, and calculus one. And, and I, I, I almost failed both of those classes and, and it, there was a lot of work, work required for those. And, and I was, like I said, a reluctant, reluctant to do any schoolwork back then, especially when I was a freshman in college, a sophomore in college. So I, and I had always been into writing and, and reading books, you know, and um, it just seemed literature, a literature degree seemed like a very easy way to get through college. And, I, I, you know, I had no real plans for post-college at the time. So I started taking literature classes, writing classes. I took poetry classes. And I wound up getting this dual degree that they had in uh, in literature and, and creative writing. So what was it? What were you reading back then? Like, who were the writers that got you started? <laughs> The writers that got me, well, I mean, if you go back, like, far, far to, like, freshman year of high school and stuff like that, I mean, I was I was way out of uh, Dungeons and Dragons playing nerd, and, I mean, I was reading, <laughs> like, J.R.R. Tolkien. What is, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I'm not, I never got into that, but what the hell is Dungeons and Dragons? What is that? Dungeons and Dragons is a role-playing game where you get together with some people, and there's a dungeon master who, like, <laughs> are... <laughs> My friend Arthur was the dungeon master. He sort of like orchestrates the games and like oversees these like scenarios. And, and you basically sit around and you like pick what kind of character you're going to be. And you could be an elf or a dwarf or a paladin or a warrior. And then you have like certain skills and there's a lot of dice rolling. And you, you basically like talk your way through these like adventures that the dungeon master creates for you. And you sort of, you, you know, you fight dragons and rescue maidens or whatever. Right, is there play acting involved or is it just like sitting around a board? There's... There's no play acting involved really in Dungeons and Dragons, but people have taken it to the next level where there's like live action role playing, which like I wrote a, a little bit about because I'm obsessed with it, not doing it with observing it. I wrote a little bit of it, tried to bring it a little bit into Sleepy Hollow, but um, there are people that took it to the next level where there's LARPers, live action role players who like physically go out to like a field dressed as their characters and they, they battle out. There's like a certain way you play this game where they like, they actually act out. The Dungeons and Dragons. I believe there's a documentary about it too. They're called LARPers. <laughs> yeah, LARPers. It's live action role playing. L A R P. So wait, yeah, it's is, pretty it, good. is that only for Dungeons and Dragons, or is a can a LARPer be? You know, is that other other context as well? There, there may very well be LARPing because LARPing is its own thing. So there may very well be like Star Trek LARPers. Like I haven't gone that deep into it. I would love to actually now that you're mentioning it, see how many different ones there are. But most of the ones I've seen, it's like, you know, um, that kind of fantasy, like, like wizards and, and things. Um, they actually do it in a park near my house in Brooklyn. I've yet to determine what day of the month they go, but I really want to go see them do it. Sure. Sure. So, um, Okay, so just tracking this a little bit, you you get out of gra- uh, undergrad, then you you yeah. sort of are dicking around, and you decide that you want to go to graduate school to delay your entry into the real world, and then you go to graduate school for a year, and then you drop yeah. out, and then you drop out, and then what happens after that? What happens after that is I, I, when I dropped out, I, I had gone back up to Boston to start the second year, and I literally went to one day of classes and had like an anxiety attack, and was like, I don't want to do this anymore. Dropped out, called my parents. 
told them I had dropped out, wrote letters to the school that I had to do and, and got my loans refunded for that year because it was like before the deadline. And I stayed up in Boston in the house that I was living at um, literally until my money ran out. I was up there. Um, 9-11 happened. I was up there. Like I, I would like ride the T around Boston, like listening to my headphones and like going record shopping with what little money I had left. And I briefly thought I would get a job in a record store up there. Then I didn't. Then I ran out of money and I basically just called my parents and was like, I'm coming home. <laughs> and my mother drove up to Boston and, uh, and I packed up all my stuff and, and moved back home. I found somebody to take over my lease, my room in the, in the house where I was living. And I moved back home to my parents' house. I hadn't been there in five years. I sort of the basis for that aspect of the novel came from, from that brief period of, I mean, I was uh, 20. I graduated from college. I was 21. I was 22. I was 23 when I moved. Back, when this happened, I moved back to my parents' house. So were you so there was like were a, you bummed out about it, or did, you know what was your emotional state upon moving back? My my emotional state was like this strange mix of all of that. Like I felt like a total failure, but I also felt really relieved because I was having like. I wasn't having a good time up there. I was having like weird anxiety attacks that I had never had before and I didn't know how to handle them. And so part of me felt relieved. I also had like some friends from college or friends, friends from college who had become my friends, um, who were in the same situation, like living a couple towns over from me, um, who were back home, you know, and I would hang out with them and that was like a lot of fun. I didn't have a job, nor did I feel like at that time, like some sort of like, in, in, you know, overwhelming pressure to get one. Um, so I kind of just like loafed around. I watched a ton of movies and, and so there was like, it was this weird mixture of like, I was kind of enjoying it, but I knew it wasn't going to last and I knew I wasn't like an adult or making any strides towards being an adult, but there was a lot of different emotions floating around. Yeah. Well, okay. So let's talk about these anxiety attacks. Like what, what do you, what did they entail? I mean, were you like all of a sudden like on the floor in the fetal position or what? No, no. Yeah, no, they weren't. They were the, they were really bad. Um, they were, it was more like I had to walk or I would have to like walk or like do something like I couldn't sit still. They were like that. My mind would start just like racing. I would get like really like, I'd be like, Oh my God. Like, and there were sort of like, you know, like general anxiety. So there was nothing that I could, it wasn't like, it wasn't like, Oh, I need a job that's making me anxious or like anything like that. It was just this like weird fear of just like the nebulousness of, of my life, you know? And, and I would get up and I would like walk around the block or I would get on the train and just go somewhere. I, driving in the car sometimes helped us the feeling of like in being in trying to like be in motion, even if I wasn't really going anywhere, just like travel sort of helped sometimes. Wow. That's interesting. So um, did you ever, did you, do you feel like you have any defined, understanding of it i mean it seems you said it seems sort of general but it's like did you ever trace it or go to therapy and figure out what what it was yeah that was I, you? I did i did go to therapy later for like about two years i um it, right before i started grad school and right before i started writing the book in 2000 right before 2006 is when i started grad school the second time to get my to get my um, mfa in creative writing i um i had gone through like a really bad breakup with, with like a long-term girlfriend and immediately was hit by the same same sort of panic attacks but then it was directly linked to like that breakup and like my feelings about it and so i started going to therapy and um i went to this great um who the book who my book is dedicated to um guy like old time freudian fifth ave upper east side doctor who'd been around forever and i would just go there and talk about all these things and basically we like linked it back to like my mother's anxiety 
that she has like rubbing off on me when I was a kid, which, which definitely there's something there about that. Um, uh, but, but no, I never really trace like exactly like I know, like when I was in Boston, I was having, having anxiety attacks. I wanted to leave Boston, you know? So it seemed clear cut. I was like, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be in this program. I don't know anybody, you know, I felt very alone up there. So I went home and it was, it was, it was better, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, when but what they, about when, not, they, when they came back? Okay. So what about nine eleven? Because like that particular time, you know, I don't want to give too much significance or importance to it, but I mean, nine eleven was yeah. so such a, so emotionally impactful. A lot of people, yeah. a lot of people felt anxiety. I, everyone felt anxiety to some extent uh, as a result. I of think that. so. Yeah, so, I don't know if any of my anxiety was like linked to nine eleven, but that definitely that definitely had something to do with just like general feelings. I mean, I was just more concerned for like at that time. I was I was bummed that I wasn't actually closer to New York because I felt I've always felt such an attachment to New York and, and growing up outside right outside the city. You know. Um, I felt like I was like in a weird way, like missing out on, on the intensity that everyone seemed to be going through that lived here that I knew, you know? Right. Right. Um, and I, I was all the way up in Boston. So, okay. And then as far as like therapy goes and like helping you and the fact that you dedicated your book to your therapist, like, um, like what kind of breakthrough did you make? Cause like I've been to therapy once, like one day in my entire mm-hmm. life and it just wasn't a good experience. Like it, not that it was horrific, but it was just like, eh, you know, like I just, I didn't connect and I just never went back. And, right. uh, but you know, and, I think everybody at some point could use help in some capacity. And oh, I'm, yeah. I'm interested in knowing like what specifically it was aside from tracing it back to your mother's anxiety or whatever. Like how, how do you, I mean, was it just being able to talk to somebody or were there specific, yeah. specific ways that he guided you that, he, uh, no, it was just, for me, it was just being able to talk to someone. I think in the long term that, that, that it was, I mean, he had some like insights, but like, I don't know that, like, not that this was psychoanalysis, but I don't know that psychoanalysis works like that, where you, like, you go and tell them your problems, and they're like, well, here's what you need to do. Like, I would go there and just, like, start, it was all just me talking every time I would go. I'd let everything, I would be like, you know, I would just start rambling about stuff, and and I would go on and on, and and the structure of it was something that I really liked. I knew that twice a week for, it was was basically for two years, and then one day I showed up, and he's like, I think that we can start slowing this down, and I I went once a week, and then one day he was like, I think we're done. And I was like, if you say so, And, and by that point, I had actually, like, calm down and life seemed to have gotten into a little bit more of an, a sense of order for me. But I think the routine really helped, you know, knowing that like that twice a week or whatever it was, like Tuesdays and Thursdays, like I, I had that, you know, not to look forward to, but I knew that like if things got bad, I could go there and I could vent about it and he'd be there to listen to me. You know, that, that definitely helped. Did um, it open you creatively? Uh, did it help me? Or yeah. did it, I mean, yeah, it helped me. It helped me stay calm and, and and write. You know, it helped me do work. Um, I certainly, when I was feeling anxious, I was not able to. The last thing I wanted to do was be in a room by myself. You know, in front of a computer screen. <clears throat> so it helped me. It helped me do that. It helped me focus. You know, and and I'm really, I was really grateful for that at the time because I, you know, these this happening to me, these anxiety attacks coincided with me going back to school, and and I wanted to write. You know, I wanted to be writing. I wanted to be. I wanted to be like engrossed in grad school, writing school, doing that whole thing, you know? And so well, yeah. I couldn't, if I, if I was anxious. Uh, Did you medicate at all? No, never. Not at all. I didn't. I got, I was able to like sort of finagle a prescription for Valium. Um, but that was more because like, I just wanted a prescription for like a low dose prescription of Valium. Um, <laughs> and I actually never really took them. I would take them when I was, it, it was funny because it ended up being like, I would take a Valium when like things were great. I would be like, it's a Sunday. I'm not feeling anxious. Let me take a Valium and watch a bunch of movies. Like, <laughs> so that was good, you know? And it was, that was more of me being like, 
you know, do you think you could give me a prescription for Valium? I think that would help. But, like, just to see if he would give it to me, and he did. So, so okay, so no, at, I, at that point, were you in uh, writing graduate school? Were you getting your MFA? In yeah. Cre- okay, and where did that yeah, happen? Yeah, I was. That happened at the new school here in, in, in the city. In okay, city. and how was is, how is that um, program? I, that program was great. I mean, I had a, I had, um, it was sort of everything I, I thought grad school was going to be. Um, it cost an insane amount of money. I made some really good contacts. I got a lot of writing done. Um, I, I finished a draft of the book. That was my thesis. You know, that was what I set out to do. That was what I wanted to do. Um, I met about four people that I'm still in touch with who I think are pretty talented writers, um, which seemed like a good quote quotient of, you know, how many kids there were there versus how many people I thought were actually doing good stuff. And, and um, it's been nice to have them. They're great readers, you know, and we still hang out. So it, it was great. The second time grad school, the second time around was a lot better. If I had waited until I was 27, 28 to go to film school to get my MFA, I probably would have finished it, you know. Right, right. A lot of, yeah, timing's everything. No, timing's totally everything. But then again, you know, I'm glad that it worked out the way that it did, you know. Um, and you know, if I had if I had finished my film degree, who knows what I'd be doing now? Well, yeah, that's a, that's a, that brings up that question: like, what, why literature and not film? Like, why a book and not a I, screenplay? Mm, part of it is because I think a book book seemed easier to achieve. You know, it seemed like oh, it just seemed like writing a screenplay and actually getting it made into a good movie. Also the surrendering of all, all that control, you know, if I wasn't directing, you know, I wasn't going to direct a film, you know, and like, I'm not going to direct a film, you know, but it was like, I'm one of my write a screenplay and then like by some miracle have someone make it and then they like ruin it, you know, I mean, that could still happen at some point, but it just seemed, it seemed more attainable. Like I could write a book and get it published and, and have control over it, you know? Yeah. Well, no, I, I find that to, I have, I didn't have to raise any money, <laughs> you know, there's no money involved in writing a book. Right. Only the loss of, right, right. Just the, the bleeding of personal savings. The bleeding of, yeah. Not being able to have like a real job or wanting <laughs> to have a real job. So you can write this book. That's the excuse, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, but you, uh, how long did it take you to do it? Did you feel like, I mean, it was your, just your two years or whatever in graduate school? And Yeah. Yeah. I started, I literally, I, I applied to grad school with, um, the first chapter of the book, a really early draft of the first chapter of the book that I thought was so good. I, it was great. I was like, this is the best thing ever. They're going to get me to, this is going to get me to school. I'm sure it didn't, but I, it, maybe it did because I got into school with it. And then I went into school with that. And then I wrote it for the two years that I was there. And when, I graduated. I turned in as my thesis um, the first draft of the book. It was like 270 pages or something like that. And um, then I um, then I got an agent that summer after graduating, and we rewrote the book. So it all told, it took like two years plus another like six months. Okay. Okay. Until and, I pulled it. And how were you working? Like you know, like how, how disciplined were you? Like what, what was your? Uh... I was pretty. I was pretty disciplined. My schedule was really weird at the time when I was in grad school, and I look back on it now, and I'm like, how did I do that? Because I feel like I'm still pretty disciplined, but not like that. I um I, I played in a band at the time, and um we practiced three times a week, which seems ridiculous now, but we practiced on Monday nights, and uh, we practiced on Tuesday nights and Thursday nights and Sundays, like all day, and then the new school was classes were Monday nights and Wednesday nights. And I worked, I got a part-time job working at a preschool as an assistant teacher um, in the afternoons, Monday through Thursday. So I would literally go to work Monday through Thursday at 1 PM and work until 5:30. Then either go directly from there to grad school 
or band practice, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and be at either of those things until like 11 o'clock at night, and then come home to my apartment and write until 2 or 3 in the morning. I did that consistently for a really long time, and then I would sleep in because I didn't have to be at work until 1. And it was like, I really liked that schedule. I was very much like a night person at that time, and I probably still am. Um, and I got a lot of work done in those times, and on the weekends I would just like go out and hang out. But but Monday through Thursday I was pretty disciplined with writing okay. every day. So you, but it sounds like you have like a nat, like naturally have like a lot of energy. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, that's a pretty fair assessment. I mean, it's 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 like a combination of like energy, but more so like. I'm just not able to, like, relax. I've been accused of that a lot of times. Um, like, I can't just, like, I feel like even when I, like, because, like, I watch a ton of movies, even when I watch movies, I feel like I'm doing something because I feel like it's, like, studying for, like, writing or, like, inspiration for writing or, like, that I'm consuming art. So, like, I'll literally block out time where, like, I'll do this or do that and then watching a movie will be, like, part of my, like, productivity schedule for the day, you know? I'm just not able to, like, sit back and do nothing. My my brain doesn't let me do that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, okay, so the book comes... It's sort of a blessing a blessing and a curse. Yeah, I was going to say, it's, it's, it's good for productivity, at least, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Can you take vacations? Mm, I'm really bad at taking vacations. Um, like, my dream vacation is to, like, go away with like some cute girl where I write the whole time in like Paris and then like we hang out at night but during the days I write it always involves like some sort of thing where like I'm doing work in like an exotic location it's really funny like I'm just like I'll go to Paris and sit in a cafe and write and then hang out in Paris nightlife you know like at night but only after I get my writing done right right I always there's always this really funny David Mamet quote I don't know if you've ever seen it but he's like I hate vacation there's nothing to do and I'm always (laughs) That's actually kind of the way I feel about vacation. Like, I never know what to do, you know? Like, I can. Sometimes I can, but it's only, like, I have to really, like, in my brain, like, plan it out that, like, I'm going to play the role of vacationer, and then, like, I can do it. I can't just, like, it's weird. So where do you get this from? Like, are your parents workaholics, or are they really, uh, like... No, my parents are not workaholics. I mean, that's not, you know, my parents are by no means lazy people. My dad worked really hard flying planes his entire life my mother raised three boys you know um and they're pretty active productive people in that sort of sense i I don't know where it came from though i mean my my i have two younger brothers my middle brother is a lawyer um he's married and has two little two little kids um he's like a total type a workaholic constantly working all the time and i feel like i got a little bit of that but he's he's way worse than me you know but i, I really don't know where it came from I, no one else in my family seems to seems to they all seem to be able to <laughs> i don't know it's weird but you know you said your mother had some you know anxiety or something i mean yeah she does she definitely has that going on so maybe part of it comes from that i mean maybe there's like you know, maybe that's how I deal with my anxiety is that, like, I just keep constantly busy all the time so I don't have to, like, think. You know, that's definitely part of it. You know, you don't have to, like, it's like sort of like Woody Allen's, like, analysis of, like, people creating all these, like, problems for themselves so they don't have to, like, you know, deal with, like, the larger questions of, like, when am I going to die and what's going to happen when I die? You know, right. so they, like, <laughs> just... invent all these relationship problems so they don't have to deal with those things. There's definitely, like, an element of that, you know, keep keep busy and you don't have to, like think about like the unanswerables yeah no it's like like, if i can do you ever feel like i mean i have this thought like very frequently where i'm just like man 90 uh, like it's in the 90s like 95 97 percent of human activity is just static it's just it is it seems so it seems so silly to me and like you start to imagine the world and how it might be improved and how uh 
we might get out of the cycles that we seem to have been in since like the dawn of man in some capacity or, you know, one way or the other. And it just seems to me like that the way we live would have to change like really radically. Uh, yeah. Do you know, do you ever think That's like true. that or am I, you know, uh, no, I mean, I think like that. I mean, do you mean like static in the way that like people just aren't like doing things or like no, it just changing? No, it just feels like like you say like like so like so much of it is needless. It's just like distra- yeah. it's distraction or it's just spinning. I your- feel like everything is distraction. I mean, if we're talking about it in that in that terms, yeah, I feel like I, that's why I feel like sometimes I can't like not that I can't relate to people because I can in some ways, but I feel like I just can't. I feel like, like you just said, like for me, like 90 to 95% of everything that people do is unnecessary or like, I'm just like, that's why you're not, and then people complain that they're not getting anything done or that their life isn't where they want it to be or they're not like making the strides that they want to make. And I'm like, it's because you spent four hours on the telephone or something. Like, it's just like, they're not like, they're doing all these things like procrastination, like generally, you know, like they know what they should be doing, but they're not doing it. I don't know. I think about, I think about everything way too much. So I'm sure I've thought about what you're talking about. Yeah. No, I mean, it's just like, it just seems to me like it, and it's also about like how to like how best to enjoy life or how, how do people actually get along? And it's like, Mm -hmm. yeah, uh, it seems like there would have to be like major changes made to the way people approach existence. But it's just, you know, I think we're a ways off. Um, we're we're a ways ways off but yeah i don't know i mean i try to focus on like my approach to life and like my enjoyment of life and i'm like i feel like for the most part i'm like doing the things that i want to be doing and i know what i like to do and i just like i'm the older i get the more i just try to like do those things and you know keep my life in in order so what are those Um, things i mean it's obviously writing writing i i movies as i said i'm just like i'm obsessed with film i like write every movie that i watch and the date that i watch it in this like little book i've been doing it since like 2003 or something like that so at this point it's like pretty extensive so how many Um, how many movies are you seeing every week it depends i'm seeing i wish i had the book with me because i could tell you because last year i broke i was like very proud of myself and also at the same time really disheartened at like how much time I spent doing this, but I broke my record for how many movies I watched in a year. Um, and it was like, it was, it was over 300. So I was really excited about that. Um, but most of the time I'm, I, I would say like in a perfect week, I watch four movies okay. in like a seven day period. I don't know. I like to end every day watching a movie if I can, like that's the perfect day, you know, no matter what I do. Um, so what well, are some what, a is lot. Some, what is like in your pantheon? We know Boogie Nights is in there, but like what else is in your Boogie uh, Nights is in my pantheon. Woody Allen's in my pantheon. I just with my uh, my friend Matt from grad school last year, we embarked on a quest to watch every Woody Allen movie, and I have I think I have two more to watch, and I've watched them all. He he watched them all, but um, did you did you see the American Masters documentary on Woody Allen? On I did I did see the American Masters documentary. I actually really liked it. I liked all the all both parts of it. I heard people say that, you know, the first part was much better than the second part, but I was, I was really into it. I was, uh, I was very entertained by his, I, he just got funny stuff to say about life and to see like some of the little insights into like his writing process and his little slips of paper and, and where he writes his ideas down. He's got this, I don't know, apparently you saw too, he has this shoe box of like ideas for screenplays that he just when he gets an idea he scrawls it down and puts it in the shoebox and he like started pulling them out and he's like oh here's one from so-and-so and he was like about a magician or something like that he's like that could make a good movie yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. i really like that yeah i found i found him like on film i find him like every time i see him interviewed or you know i watch that documentary and i found him so charming and so he is very charming likable and then i read a doc or i read a biography of him years ago um 
and it's like the whole Mia Farrow thing and the blah, blah, blah. And it's just like, I don't know. I guess, what do I give a shit? If you like his movies, uh, it's like, it's just, yeah, that, I mean, it's, it's that weird part of like separating the artist and the art. And where do you, yeah, yeah, it's tough. It can, it can be really tough. I'm a big, I'm a big, we must separate the artist from, from the art thing. I, I think it's dumb. Not, not that people are dumb when they, when they can't do this, but I, I think it does a disservice to just art in general. Um, because I mean, not this, you know, it's like Woody Allen, obviously that's like a crappy thing that he did and not like good. I'm not celebrating that, but the guy makes brilliant movies. Um, and I like movies too much and I like art too much to like just shun an entire canon of over 40 movies, you know, 75% yeah. of which are like really amazing and have some great insights into like the human condition and what it means to be a human being. Um, and and they're often really funny they're, or touching or whatever. And to just like turn my back on that, I feel like I'd be missing out. You know, um, it's the same way. Roman Polanski. I mean, give me a break. Like you know, like his movies are absolutely mind-bogglingly amazing. I'm gonna say that you know that they that they're bad just because he's a shitty person. You know, it just it doesn't add up to me. Yeah, it's yeah, it's hard. But I mean, did you see the Ghost Rider by any chance? The Polanski film. I did see the Ghost Rider. I did see the Ghost Rider. Yeah, I sort of like that. That was like you know. I, I sort of liked it too. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I like that one. He's really good. But uh, he's great. I, I mean, I just I find it I, I find it like morally. Um, I don't know. Confusing. It's just confusing. I don't. Even, I don't know how to feel. But then you watch the movie. Oh yeah, no. Then, then you watch the definitely. movie. And you watch the movie, and you're like, I liked it. <laughs> it was great. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> definitely. No. It's definitely morally confusing, and you sort of have to like. You have to like not think about it when you're watching the movie or analyzing the art. I mean, we could talk about the man or the the woman or the artist, you know, and and make all the judgments you want. And and you know, obviously, when you when you judge sort of like what, what Polanski, for example, or Woody Allen have done in their lives. They're sort of morally reprehensible people, but they make good art. I can still appreciate the art without, you know, it, it doesn't make me, you know, it doesn't like implicate me morally in, I'm not condoning their behavior in real life. I'm just saying they make good art. You know, they're two totally separate things, you know, right. like if I was, like, I don't know, the analogy is so not apt, but it's like if I was having like a heart attack and like the like greatest heart surgeon or whatever that I needed to come and do the thing was also like some horrible person, like am I not going to want him to like save my life? That's totally not an apt analogy but it's like sort of like that you have to be able to separate all of these things you know people are people people do bad things all the time right Shitty things. sure 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 so uh how about more recently when we talk about favorite movies like if you've seen 300 movies in the last year like what's the uh what's some of the good ones or which ones stay i keep out? talking about i keep talking about this movie a separation the iranian film it, it won best picture for um best foreign film um i don't know when it came came out um few months ago maybe it's still in the theaters here um it's amazing film it's the most i but i keep saying it's the most morally even-handed movie i've seen in a really long time since like literally since like christoph kieslowski's the decalogue i don't know if you know those movies but like Wait, is that, is that the movie. red white and blue films or no no red white and blue are the are the color trilogy or whatever those oh. are amazing too but decalogue are these he made them for polish tv he, he was polish he made them for polish tv and there's 10 hour-long films each one deals ostensibly with like a different of the Ten Commandments, but actually most of the time there's many commandments that like overlap in each one of them. And they just basically each present like there's one about thou shall not kill and it presents like all these ideas about people killing other people, but in a totally morally even handed way where like 
you can't, you know, like no questions are answered. They're just raised. And it's really good. Um, that's sort of what like a separation did. It's about like this couple that's divorcing in Iran and like how it affects their daughter and how it affects their life. And you leave the movie without any sort of clear cut, you know, it's not like mom was right or dad was right. They both have their issues or their reasons for why the relationship isn't working out. And you're not really like, you can't really judge either of them. It's, it's very even handed. And, and I really respect that. It's very hard to do. Um, I love that. That was one of my favorite movies from last year. Also that movie certified copy that came out last year, the Abbas Kiristami movie, which also happens to be, he's an Iranian guy as well. Um, Juliet Binoche was in it. I don't know if you if you saw that movie. But, no, I, um, I have an eighteen month old, so I'm way behind on movies. Yeah, you're way behind. See, you, I have none of these things, so like I can just like turn the TV and watch my head. I would like, obviously, like respect you know the responsibilities of having a child. I, I would like to do that at some point, but I have none of those things. But I'm like free to like watch as many movies as I want. Yeah, I'm telling um, you, you better get them all in now because like once that baby. I'm comes, trying. I hear it's all over with. So many of my friends have kids. I, I just was at my good friend's uh, kid's first birthday party with all my other friends who have babies, and they were all just like. It was, you know, it was like the same kind of thing. They're like, I haven't watched a movie in months, like, uh, you know, or like when they do, they just like totally zone out because it's just like downtime, you know. Well, that's the problem. Um, that's the problem is that like during the day you're working and then uh, then you finally get the baby down to sleep and like you have a glass of wine and try to watch a movie and you're like you're asleep in five minutes. Yeah, yeah. and it's and it's probably that's probably great, you know. You're probably just like, oh, it's great. I had a glass of wine. I zoned down in front of the TV and fell asleep. You know, it's really nice. Um, but, uh, it is, but, but it's yeah. al- but it's also like I really did want to see that movie. <laughs> like we, like my wife and my wife and I, like you know, we we actually like rent the thing on pay per view, and like you know, we go go to the trouble, and like we last about fifteen minutes, and then we're just like you know, sleeping. That on the is couch. so funny. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the way it is for everyone I know who has kids, you know. Yeah. God, I, I always joke that, like, it's going to be different when I have a kid, you know. I'll be like, no, I will still, like, be as dedicated to all of this as I am, but. I know it's not going to be the case. It's sort well, of disheartening. I think when they get a little older, you know, it'll get easier. But uh, yeah, yeah. And, right and how old is your? You have a son or a daughter? A daughter. She's eighteen months. She's eighteen months. Yeah, my um, my uh, niece is going to be two in like a couple of weeks, and it's the same thing with my brother. I mean, she two year old. She is on the go constantly. Sure. There's like never a moment where you can sit. You know. Yeah, unless you want to watch like you know, uh, Dora. Your house go up in flames. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, unless oh yeah, unless you're like yeah, she uh, my niece loves to watch Madagascar Part Two. Uh-huh. Um, my brother is like, I think the sound of Madagascar Part Two like makes him want to like blow his brains out. He's seen it so many times at this point, yeah. but like she loves it. She 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 will. That's if you want to calm her down, put on Madagascar Two. So okay, so let's talk about how film informs your fiction. Um, you know, if you're watching this many movies, I mean, you're also reading yeah. you're also reading books. I take it, so that's part of your yeah uh-huh. diet as yep. well. But like. Yep. Uh, like, what do you think about that? Like, you know, like I, I, you hear different things and you read different things about people and their opinions about uh, films influence on fiction and people writing books yep. with the idea of them being uh, adaptable and whether or not that's good yep. or bad for the art and blah, blah, blah. Like, what do you think on that? Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, I think there's two things there. Um, one, for me, I, I think my, my writing is pretty... Like, I've been told that it's cinematic. I, I, I've been told, I mean, I, and this happened in grad school, too, where people people criticize it for being that way. I mean, I was told at one point by someone, a student at, in, at the new school, that, you know, there was too much dialogue in my in my prose and not enough description. But I actually hate description, like overly descriptive things. The writing, the fiction, the prose that I like is really stripped down, you know, um, that sort of thing. And so I feel like film 
lends itself to that. I'm and also wrapped into there is the fact that like I'm much more versed and literate and literate in films. So like when I when I need to like draw on things, you know, to like steal or like borrow or or just like get some guidance. It, it's often movies that I think about that I'm like, oh, there's you know, how did so and so do the wedding scene in, in that movie? You know, and my my literary repertoire isn't as vast as my film and tickets. I mean, I do read a lot of books, but I'm a much slower reader. And so if I read 10 books a year, I'm psyched where, you know, I try to watch hundreds of movies. So, so what, what, um, what authors are big for you or were big for you as you were a young uh, person? Uh, Hemingway was really big for me. Um, my favorite author of all time is Cormac McCarthy. Um, I love Dennis Johnson. Um, Philip Roth is huge. Don DeLillo is huge. The, the, my three favorite authors are probably Don DeLillo, Cormac McCarthy, and Philip Roth. I mean, I've read, I've read every Cormac McCarthy book. I'm, I'm, at some point, I'll read every Philip Roth book, but there's so many of them. I mean, I've read, I've read a bunch. Um, and their writing, and, and then that Hemingway stuff. I mean, I really like the stripped down, um, you know, to the point sentences that you know that Hemingway started doing, and, and then McCarthy started doing after he got into Hemingway. You know, where he started writing without punctuation of any kind. Um, those are huge to me. But then, then again, I feel like all of the writing that I really like reflects that sort of like film. I mean, I, I would say that Philip Roth is probably the the most wordy writer that I like, you know, and I and I don't write like him at all, but he's very wordy, I think, at times. And normally that would, that would be off-putting to me, but he does it so well. So do you see so, yourself, though, do you see yourself at any point writing a screenplay? Yeah, I would love to write a screenplay. Um, I uh, I optioned the film rights for Sleepy Hollow Family Almanac, and my first question to like the people, that were, the producers that were optioning it through my agent, I was like, tell them that I want to write the screenplay, you know? And they're like, you can write it on spec, and I was like, I don't have time, so I haven't done that. But I would love to write a screenplay. Yeah, I mean, at some point, my fantasy would be like, if I, you know, write a few more books and get. Even the littlest bit of clout, I could say, like, you know, I right, give me a shout out writing the screenplay for, for well, something. Well, who optioned it? Uh, this company called uh, Mazer Kaplan. Do you know Mitch Kaplan? He uh, he does the Miami Book Expo and he runs Books and Books. It's a chain store, like, in the Miami area. Sure, yeah. Um, he's one half of this production company and this woman, uh, uh, Paula Mazer. Um, and they. They did Nim's Island. They're shooting the Guernsey Literary Potato Peel Society book movie right now. Kenneth Branagh is directing it. That's what they're. That's where they are right now. So they're like they're pretty on the ball. They get stuff done. They really like the book. So I've uh, I've I've met both of them since since they optioned it, and they uh, they seem very enthusiastic. They want to make they 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 like it as a TV show. So, oh really? Okay. Know. Yeah, that's something I have no interest in in writing, but but. Uh, it would be. I think it, there's actually that that could work. I don't know if, if it was done well, but well, what about casting? Yeah. Like when you're writing this thing and you're imagining these characters, since you're so steeped in filmed, are you imagining actors as your actual characters or no? I'm not really. I feel like I'm really bad at this like hypothetical casting because like other people have asked me, and that's really funny. My dad. Um, I was telling somebody else about this recently. My dad um, cast Ed Harris to play him. Like he like out of the blue one day because like when when the film rights things happened, you know there was all, a lot of talk about that kind of stuff. And my dad's like, my dad's like, you know what I was thinking? Ed Harris could play me. He's he's really good. And and uh, he was like 
going on and on about how much he likes Ed Harris and he thinks Ed Harris could pull him off. And I was like, you know what, Dad, that's like actually a really good idea because like they're like roughly the same age and and it would be good. And then my joke was always, I would play Calvin, I would play the main character, but I don't know if I could pass off as being 24 anymore. <laughs> that was my that was, that was my big joke. I was like, I'll play him, I'll become famous. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have acting ambitions at all? Do you have any of that? I, none. None. I get really com- uncomfortable in front of cameras. I don't think I could do it at all. But like in my like fantasy world, you know, I like I I I, I play him, and then like everybody's like, who knew he could act as well? <laughs> like, I don't think it's ever gonna happen. It would be so, awesome though. But, but you said you played in a band too, so you have like multiple interests yeah. here. I do have multiple interests. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, like for a while, I was going to be a photographer. I had a big interest in photography and then music. I mean, I still love music. I don't, I don't play in a band anymore. But um, what did you I, play? I played keyboards in a in a fantasy metal band. What, I guess you would call it. What was it called? Uh, Titan was the name of the band. Oh. Um, I guess we you, we were like sort of on permanent hiatus at this point. Our guitar player we never officially broke up, but our guitar player moved back to California, and then I sort of just started using the time to write instead because I felt like I was you know the book I'd already sold the book and, and you know seemed like things were going much better on the writing front than they were on the as far as making money. The band was breaking even. We had records and stuff, but we weren't we were in, by no means making money. You know, so I figured I might as well dedicate to the thing that was going well. Yeah, no, and like, so you were you really into metal? Is that what you were into as a kid? Yeah, uh, not. I mean, I was into metal as a kid. I didn't really get into metal, and like, I got into. I really then got into metal and hardcore punk, sort of like mid college to the tail end of college, and then I sort of made up for it in major ways. I was always like late bloomer and everything, so my teenage years were spent reading in my room by myself um were you a loner like yeah let's talk about like where you're from and your your childhood and stuff like what uh yeah. you, said you're, you said you're from near new york city yeah i'm from westchester county a town called pelham it's um it's southeast westchester which is the first county north of the city so it borders the bronx um my whole family's from there my mother I, i'm from a town called pelham and to the west of pelham is mount vernon to the east of pelham is from near my, my my dad is from mount vernon and my mother's from near and they married and moved to the middle to pelham which was like the sort of rich suburb i think that they always idealized as like the place that they would make it to you know so they they bought a house there and that's where I grew up it's very much the suburbs it's very much a particular kind of suburbs um, like the suburbs of New York City um, but yeah I grew up there I went to the to the public high school there um, I wasn't necessarily a loner but I was not like I wasn't into the high school like the what the kids in my high school were into it, it was a very preppy town and I very much was not so what did you look like role. what did you look like were you like a long hair in high school or no, no, nothing like that. I was just like a real regular bland kid that like, you know, um, I was class comic. I think they changed it from class clown to class comic. Like that was my thing. Like I just like told jokes and stuff like that. What, like like, cl- sort of like clown as a pejorative or something? What, what? No, like a senior superlative, like nicest eyes. I was class comic. You know? I know, but why, like why, why change it? Like what class clown is? I don't know. Like, yeah, yeah. I think that they thought like it came to be that like class clown was like some pejorative thing. And they're like, no, we can't call it that anymore. So they like PCified it by calling it class comic. I was actually the first person I think that it was class comic where they changed it. It's because clowns are evil. I think there's like that evil. Yeah, because clowns are evil and like, you know, like you don't want to be the clown. Like that's not what you want to be. You want to be a comic. Um, but I was like pretty generic. I mean, I, I didn't like there was a lot of khaki pants and like 
cuffing of the jeans going on, like J. Crew style, like in my high school. Like I never did any of that, but I didn't dress any certain part. I just wore like jeans and t-shirts. And then in college, I wore like crap that I bought at the Salvation Army. But I, I was kind of just like whatever in high school. Like I don't think anybody looked twice at me in, in, in any way, you know. So you were like, in a, you didn't have like a distinguished career as a high school student. No, no, not at all. I. I I um I was like a straight B student. I did no extracurricular activities. They asked me to go to a couple of AP classes. I said no because <laughs> like that was you know I was like my head was not into much of like thoughts of the future when I was in high school. So I was like AP classes more work no way. So I just like stayed in the regular classes, got B's. I did like reasonably well on the SATs, which I think really helped me get into any college. Well, um, what did you get on the SATs? 1300 yeah which to me seemed like pretty pretty good yeah that's pretty good that's definitely pretty good. <laughs> yeah i was like i was shocked that i got 1300 and i was, I was like i got 1300 <laughs> um and uh so i think that helped me get into college and uh Where, and, and you, know, you said you went to fairfield that's right yeah you, and i went to fairfield and actually i chose between fairfield and bu but um boston at the time i, I graduated i was also like on the young end of things so i graduated from high school i was 17 um and most of the other kids were like 18 and much more mature than me. So when I, when it came time for me to leave home and go away to college, I was like the thought of like moving to a big city to go into a school with like 30,000 kids, which is like mind melting to me. I couldn't handle it. So I went to Fairfield, which was only 45 minutes drive up from my parents' house and 3000 kids total in the school, you know, so it seemed yeah. like a much more gradual step into the, the world of independence or whatever. Okay. So like as a child though, did you know you were going to write? I mean, you, I know you were into it, but like how early were you aware that this was something you were going to do? I, I was, I mean, I don't know if I was aware that like I, I wanted to be a writer necessarily, but I definitely wrote from way back. I, I can remember, like, I don't know how old I was, but I could remember, I can remember distinctly that there were these toys that I used to be obsessed with that were called I wish I could remember exactly what they're called. They were like barnyard warriors or something like that. And there were these like, they were the, they were like an art. There was like sheep, and then there was like cows and pigs, and they were like battling one another. So it would be like a pig with like a bazooka or like a jetpack, and you could buy them. And they would like you know there was like the commercials were like these cartoon versions of them like blowing each other up with like grenades and. and assault rifles and stuff, but they were barnyard animals. I wish I could. I think they were barnyard warriors or barnyard commandos. I have to look it up now. But I remember, like, amassing all of them when I was a kid at whatever age this was and then writing, like, one-page stories, like, almost like fan fiction for, like, barnyard animals where I would write these, like, scenarios where the sheeps, they all had names and they would, like, talk to one another and then, like, blow each other up. Um, and I thought it was so cool that I was doing that at the time. And I think that's probably the first incarnation of me doing any writing, you know? Sure. Um, and that was, that was a pretty long time ago. And then in high school I did, I wrote some short stories and like teacher, some, some of my English teachers seemed to like always think that they were really good, even though I, I didn't know what was making them good. And you know, they would, they would, I got some award for something, one of my short stories and they hung it up like in the front of the school with these other people who had gotten writing awards, you know? So I mean, I've been doing it for a while. Yeah, yeah. And so is, uh, how do you pronounce your last D'Agostino. 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 Is that Italian? Yeah. Okay. It where, is totally Italian. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. it seems obvious. So where in Italy are you? Uh, are your ancestors? My um, su- southern Italy, the frowned upon south of Italy. That's where I'm from. The... I'm a Sicilian. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so like my, my father is 100% Italian. His father was born in Italy. Um emigrated over here at an early age and then actually joined the army and went back to Italy to fight 
with the Americans against the Italians in World War II, but he's from a uh, fishing town um, southwest of Rome called Tufo. It's on the western coast south. I've never been there. I really want to go. My father has been. Um, and then my mother is half German and half Italian, and her Italianness is Sicilian, so I've definitely got some Sicilian in there, which is its own thing, I think. That's a lot of Italian. That's a lot of Italian. In, uh, in a, a lot of Italian, yeah. I'm kind of a mutt. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm like yeah. Sicilian. My last name is Sicilian, and then my... Uh, you know, and then I'm like French and English and Scottish. Yeah, uh, you know, it's like I it's, think that's what I've got going on. I'm like 75 percent Italian. Then my mother's father is German, and a whole bunch of other things. You know, so like I've got like 75 percent solid Italian, and then all this other crap mixed in together. But we're a pretty Italian family. We're a pretty like northeast Italian family. So like its own seems to be its own beast of like Italian. Like bastardized Italian culture. What do you mean up in the the northeast of the United States? Up in the northeast, yeah, yeah. There's this like, there's this thing up here. It's like New Jersey, Lower New York, Long Island, and like they even like like my grandparents. They all have this like they speak this like weird hybridized Italian that like where they say Italian words that aren't Italian words. It's like their Americanized version of them. Where like people who speak actual Italians, they have no idea what they're talking about. They have, like, all the names for the food that they pronounce. It's completely different than what it should be in, in proper Italian. And it seems to be, like, a, a northeastern United States thing. Okay. Well, uh, what about what you're working on now? Like, what's what's next? Well, I'm, what's next? I'm, I'm about three weeks away, I would say, from finishing the first draft of the next book. It's, um... It's, I have to cut it down by a lot because it's, it's pretty long right now, but um, it's sci-fi. Um, pretty different from Sleepy Hollow. I'm a little anxious to see what people are going to say about it or if I'm going to be able to um, sell it. I don't have a deal for, for the second book, you know, so I still have to shop it around. I mean, I have to give it to Algonquin, but um, it's straight up like speculative children of men style sci-fi. Oh, okay, <laughs> not- okay. Yeah. So I mean, not- I think it's really good, and I think it's going well. Um, but I'm just a little worried that, like, you know, people are gonna. I, I don't want to be the kind of writer who's uh, just doing the same thing over and over again. And I'm not. I didn't intentionally do this to like do a 180 in genre or anything like that. It was just something I really wanted to do. I had this idea. Um, so yeah, science fiction about a family of farmers in like a weird alternative universe. Like you mean like on another planet? No, like uh, in like um, I um. I, so I work at a preschool. I can give you like the long, I have like no elevator pitch for this thing, but like the long answer is that like I work at a preschool, um, a private preschool in New York City. Um, and from working here, I see like how the private school system works here. And like kids have to get into this like private school tract. So to go to the best private high school, they have to go to the best private elementary school. To go to the best private elementary school, they have to go to the best private preschool. And to get from preschool to elementary school, you have to take this test. It's like a misused IQ test called the ERPs. And um, depending on how you take it when you're four years old and depending on how you do it on that test, you can, you know, it's like the SATs for four-year-olds and they get into schools based on how they do on this. And if they do badly, they don't get into any schools and their parents, like, bug out and say their lives are going to be horrible. Um, and a lot of pressure is put on these four-year-olds and a lot of... Um, that's the most that's the most depressing thing I've ever heard in my life. It's, it's totally crazy. Yeah, it totally happens. This is the way that it works, and it's really weird. And you know, obviously, a four year old's brain is nowhere near being developed. You cannot. I mean, IQ tests in general are grossly misused. They're really aptitude tests that are designed to be given to people, and then based on the results, 
weaknesses are determined and then you're able to like hone in on like what types of therapies or what types of things you can do to like bolster up those weaknesses. It's not to like judge how stupid you are, you know, but these tests get misused as IQ tests. And so, you know, a four-year-old is, is by no means, their brain is not developed at all. It's how they do on a test when they're four is no indication of how smart they're going to be later in life, you know. So I had this idea that like I would do like science fiction based on like a world where society operated where when you're four years old, five years old actually in the book, um, all citizens of this country are given just like really elaborate IQ tests. Based on how they do on the IQ test, they're put into like a class that they can never stray from for the rest of their life. And the highest class is given access to like better jobs and better education and like monetary incentives to like breed with one another. And they're the ones who are like are allowed to drive cars. Everyone else has to take public transportation. And like, you know, further down you go in the class structure, those become like the manual laborers and the bus drivers and the farmers and stuff like that. And then the people who do the worst on the test when they're five, they get segregated away from society into like a gulag type, like concentration part of the country where they're like forced to work in these like factories and stuff like that. So anyway, the book is about some farmers who have twins who are on the cusp of having the test taken and like how they deal with it as a family and the results of it and stuff like that. Wow, that's interesting. Is, it, think, set, is, it, set yeah. in the, is it set in the future or is it set in like... It is, it, is set, it is set in no time. I'd, like, I'm not specifying any time and there's no like technology is pretty much exactly the way that it was in like the 1990s. There's just like like everyone takes buses and there's trains and there's no like laptops there's no mention of like laptop computers or anything like that so I'm, i tried to like unspecify the time and the place like clearly it's the united states but i i don't you know like there's no names of anything or like it's very description less if that makes sense and what was that what was the movie you just referenced that had clive owen in it why am i blanking men children children of men yeah men without children but yeah children of men Yeah, men without children so are those yeah, is that is that movie like what, what what were the influences that got you going in this sci-fi direction it was that kind of movie and that mo- that movie yeah um that movie that book although i like the movie much better than the book um the book version of never let me go which is one of my favorite books ever that might be the ultimate thing that got me going in this direction um that that ishigura book uh, never let me go which is like a similar thing it's like in that takes place in the 1990s in england and there's like it's basically it's ostensibly like a story about um kids in a private high school like who are dealing with being 17 years old but you know, and like all these emotions and coming of age stuff. But the backdrop of it is that they're actually all clones that have been made to like eventually be killed to have their organs harvested. So they only have like a certain amount of time to live, but they don't really know that. So, but it operates as a, as a coming of age story, you know? Um, and I really like that idea, like telling like a, a traditional story under the umbrella of some weird sci-fi set of rules. And then you just like tell this story there. Children of Men does it. That book does it. Um, there's a couple of others, but those are the two big ones. I always call it realist science fiction. That's like my name for it. I don't know if that's a real name. Yeah, no, it makes like sense, kitchen, though. It makes kitchen sense. Kitchen sink science fiction, you know? Right, right. Like no lasers shooting out of people's eyeballs or anything like that. There's no, there's no, there's aliens or spaceships, you know, but it's it's very, you know, I mean, and people have done this a million times before. I mean, Philip K. Dick, you know, there's also like a, 
what do they call it, like, a, you know, speculative, like, a fiction where people, like, uh, I'm blanking out on the term right now, but they, like, reimagine history, you know? Mm-hmm. Where, like, what if the Germans won World War II? And then you write a whole book about that. Philip, Philip K. Dick did it, and Philip Roth did it. A lot of people have done that premise, you know, what if the what if the other side won World War II? What would the world be like? So it's, it's sort of, like, in that direction, but just trying to write, like, a straight literary drama under that umbrella of of a different world sure sure well I wish you all the best of luck with it man and congratulations on Sleepy Hollow and uh, I appreciate I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me of course it's been my pleasure okay you guys there you have it that is Chris D'Agostino go get the Sleepy Hollow Family Almanac it is out there it is available wherever books are sold from Algonquin Books and Chris can be found on the web on Facebook you can find him on Twitter at Chris D'Agostino you can find him on Goodreads he is out there in cyberspace somewhere uh, this show is out there in cyberspace too you can find it on the web at otherpeoplepod.com it's on Twitter at otherpeoplepod it's on uh, the Facebook I'm on Twitter at Brad Listy and if you want to email me the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com thank you to Kill Rockstars for all the great music go check out killrockstars.com I think I have decided uh, I should let you know I think I have decided to forego the birthday party I'm going to be Christ-like and forgive myself for not going uh, I do realize that Jesus would have gone to the party. I think we all recognize that. Uh, but I am not Jesus, as if that needs saying. And I am also genuinely fatigued. Uh, I've had a long week. I've been working hard. I want to hang out with my daughter and my wife. And I want to have a glass of wine and watch some bad television. And then I want to go to bed. And uh, if this woman does try to uh, you know, reschedule with me for next week, I will be open to rescheduling without uh, animus. Without, is, that, is that the right word? Without hostility. And I will try again. I will try to be compassionate in that way and open to repairing the damage that has been done by this re, you know, recent flaky incident. And uh, I do wish her a happy birthday. So that's it. That's all I've got. Please remember that Emil Zola's first English publisher spent three months in jail for obscenity and that Groucho Marx and T.S. Eliot were pen pals. I'll be back again soon with another program, with another episode in public. Thank you very much for listening. I do appreciate that. Thank you for showing up and thank you for not inviting me to your birthday party.